Hey folks, Lisa here. Every other week, we've examined Charlotte's plans to host the Republican National Convention and what impact the convention would have on the city. The coronavirus has become a big player in that story now. Will it derail the convention? Will it shrink it considerably? Those are the questions we'll continue to investigate, but in an effort to serve our listeners the best we can right now, we're going to expand our scope and look at politics in North Carolina leading up to November's election and how the coronavirus is reshaping those dynamics. With that said, let's start the episode. It's Thursday, April 30th, and 116 days separate us from the scheduled dates of the Republican National Convention. North Carolina has laid out a plan as to how the state will reopen, and in theory, how Charlotte could host the RNC. But there's a push to accelerate that plan. From WFAE Charlotte's NPR News Source, I'm Lisa Worf. And I'm Steve Harrison. And this is Inside Politics. In today's episode, we're going to look at the burgeoning reopen NC movement and what that means for politics in North Carolina. What is this group? How many people does Reopen NC speak for? What kind of influence does it have? Is it purely about reopening the state's economy, or is it a larger movement that will continue after the state lifts restrictions? And later, we have a conversation with Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who's Governor Roy Cooper's opponent in the general election. He wants Cooper to lift the blanket statewide stay-at-home order, which was extended last week until at least May 8th. And we'll also recap the latest Charlotte City Council skirmish over the RNC. It came Monday night in a 6-5 vote of whether to accept a $50 million federal security grant for the convention. Now, Forrest did not attend the reopen rally on April 21st, though he did speak with the organizers by Zoom before they began their protest. I talked to them and, uh, you know, encouraged them to be safe and, uh, you know, stay distance from one another, to follow all the rules, to do it the right way, to show the state that uh, people can be responsible and do this sort of thing. So let's talk about Reopen NC. At Tuesday's rally, the third one, at least four people were arrested, including one of the leaders, Ashley Smith of Morganton. She made this Facebook video after being released from jail. I am not a criminal, and I was treated like like a criminal today, and that is wrong. And you know what? I hope, my one hope that out of all of this, is that the hearts and the minds of the people will see what happened to me today and the other two women who were arrested and that they will be swayed to this cause. All right, Steve, let's go back to that second rally in Raleigh last week that you attended. What was it like on the ground? It really felt like a MAGA rally, just much smaller. Yeah, and you've been to a few of those. Yes, there were about 500 people there. There were don't tread on me flags. There was even a guy with a table selling Trump merchandise. Protesters wanted the governor to lift the stay-at-home order by the end of April. Here's what I heard from them. I understood the first closing. I wasn't thrilled, but I said, hey, we can give up a little bit for the safety of all. But I didn't realize it was going to go to this extent. I'm really concerned that we're actually putting our vulnerable population more at risk 
by not getting people back to work, we won't have the resources to help them. You can't have 50 million people unemployed. I mean, that's a, a recipe for social unrest. That's David Sarmiento, Amy Enix, and Gary Jesmuk. Now, those protesters do seem to voice the concerns that a lot of people have right now. Apart from the guy selling Trump merchandise, what made this feel so partisan to you? Well, there were a lot of calls to vote Democratic Governor Roy Cooper out, and there were people with Dan Forrest t-shirts, and yes, a lot more people there supporting Trump. You had a few people spouting some more extreme views, like Kristen Homolka calling for Trump to fire Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. She cited a conspiracy theory that Fauci is trying to profit from the pandemic and works with Bill Gates, whom she blames for hurting people with vaccines. He works for the Gates Foundation, and so does that Burks. She worked for him, too. If you do your research, everybody is in with Gates somehow. So fact check, Fauci is on the leadership council of the Gates Foundation, which has worked to develop vaccines around the world. She said that vaccines funded by Gates have paralyzed thousands of people in India. PolitiFact looked into that and said that's not true. There were about half a dozen healthcare workers who had their own counter protest. They stood mostly silent, wearing masks and smocks. And the vast majority of reopen NC protesters did not engage with them, but some did. And there was some ugliness. Sarah Bauckham of Raleigh had her son in a stroller with her. She said one of the counter-protesters told her as a warning that she's had to intubate a child the same age as him. Yes, that's why I went after her. She said, oh, we intubate people his size all the time. So I told her to intubate this. To demonstrate, she extended her middle finger. And did the protesters abide by the lieutenant governor's advice to stay socially distanced? Most of the time, but there was a logjam of 100 people at one point, And that's been a big question as to what the police would do. There was an arrest at the first rally, and the Raleigh Police Department tweeted that protesting was a, quote, non-essential activity. And that's when an outside law firm stepped in, right? Yes. Reopen NC got an assist from Wisconsin law firm Michael Best, where former Trump White House chief of staff Reince Priebus is a strategist. An attorney for the firm pushed Governor Cooper to give the protesters assurances that they wouldn't be arrested. And the governor relented and said protesting is essential, but that police may, quote, intervene to protect the public and protesters if people are too close together. And... On Tuesday, they did intervene. Police made four arrests for violating the order and resisting arrest. Now, there have been rallies across the country for governors to lift their stay-at-home orders and reopen the economy. So what should we make of this movement in North Carolina? Yeah, Reopen NC has certainly got a lift from the larger conservative movement as far as pushing the governor on those protest assurances. But I don't think it's fair to say this is fueled by outsiders. And Reopen NC's organizers are trying to distance themselves from anything that would make the group appear to be not grassroots. Leading up to the Reopen NC protest, conservative Tim DiNunzio offered to pay for buses to bring people to Raleigh. He's probably best known for running for Congress in the 8th District in 2010 and hosting a machine gun social. Tim DiNunzio here again. Last week, we had a machine gun social at Jim's Gun Jobbery in Fayetteville, North Carolina. There, we talked about issues and let people shoot fully automatic MP5 and Uzi submachine guns. I remember that. Yeah, well, WREL reported on how Reopen NC had said a, quote, generous donor was paying for the buses. But one of the group's organizers, Ashley Smith, who was arrested this week, told me the group didn't end up accepting his help. 
She said it just wasn't worth the hassle and scrutiny and that other than the law firm, there was no outside help, though she said they got a number of requests from law firms to give them a hand pro bono. And at the protest, there were no buses. Everyone drove on their own. This week, one of Reopen NC's members posted in a private Facebook group that she had tested positive for the coronavirus. Did she attend any rallies? Yes, that's Audrey Whitlock, who administers the group's website. She said she didn't leave her house for 14 days, uh, but that her quarantine ended on Sunday, and she was planning on attending this week's protest in Raleigh. I hear Charlotte will have its own protest tomorrow afternoon, May 1st. That's right. The group Reopen Mac has more than 1,100 members on Facebook. The plan is to form a caravan and circle a few blocks uptown. The organizers encourage people to stay in their cars, but if they get out, they said they should wear masks and gloves and observe social distancing. Okay, so that's a snapshot of North Carolina's movement. It certainly has some similarities with protests going on in other states. And you spoke with a sociologist about that who's been researching political movements. That's right. Her name is Theda Scotchpole. She's a Harvard professor who co-authored the new book, Upending American Politics. She says the reopen movement does have some similarities to the early rise of the Tea Party in February of 2009. There were national conservative groups that were sort of taking advantage of the rant that occurred on television and encouraging local activists they were connected to to create rallies. Freedom Works is one of those national groups. It played a key role in the Tea Party movement. But that's where she sees the comparison to the Tea Party ending. And she points out movements can be both grassroots and orchestrated at a national level. Everybody says it's either astroturf or it's genuine. Come on. That's not how social movements work. So you see some of the same signs at the protests, calls to get rid of the governor, and sometimes to fire Fauci. Are there people who feel passionately about particular causes at the grassroots who are joining in? Of course there are. And some of them are organizing their peers on their own. But they are going to places that are being suggested by the president and by Freedom Works and other national orchestrators. And in this case, there is a very clear effort to target governors who are Democrats, sometimes Republicans, but usually Democrats, and suggest that they aren't really in favor of opening the economy or constitutional liberties. That's a political message, and it's meant to play into the elections this fall. And that's why you think this will die out pretty quickly. No, I think it'll burble along until President Trump can do big rallies again, which means maybe all the way till fall, because I don't think this pandemic will be over until there's a vaccine. But I don't expect it to grow into some massive thing. After all, she says most Americans of all political persuasions are worried about the virus and support quite a few of the public health measures that are being taken to slow its spread. A CBS News poll published last week found that 70% of respondents said the country's top priority should be to, quote, try to slow the spread of coronavirus by keeping people home and social distancing, even if the economy's hurt in the short term. That's where we are now. So the hardcore reopen movement is in the minority nationwide. But what if we do reopen and the virus is somewhat contained, but the economy doesn't bounce back? Yeah, I think there's an interesting scenario in which Governor Cooper and Democrats get blamed for high unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. 
Does that 30% in that CBS News poll grow? After all, the 2009 Tea Party was at first seen as a fringe group, and it powered Republicans to two huge wins in 2010 and 2014. Okay, we're going to take a break now, but when we get back, we'll be talking to Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who's running for governor. We'll hear his thoughts on the government's role in stopping the pandemic. It's limited. That's coming up on the Inside Politics podcast. Hey, folks, today's podcast was made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the listeners who submitted their questions on WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. And thank you to the listeners who made a contribution to WFAE to support breaking news and in-depth reporting. If you're enjoying today's episode and learning something new from Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, make sure to give this podcast a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. And if you want to support the podcast even further, become a member of WFAE with a donation of any amount, $5, $10, $15, you name it. Just hit the donate button on WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. And thanks. So where does the candidate trying to replace Cooper stand on the state's efforts to stop the spread of the virus? Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest's first foray into COVID-19 politics came in late March when he questioned Cooper's order to close bars and make restaurants delivery and takeout only. He sent a release saying the decision would, quote, devastate North Carolina's economy. And that's turned out to be true. But he didn't mention anything about whether it was necessary to slow the spread. When we spoke with him last Friday, Forrest said he was upset about Cooper's process. The 10 elected members of the Council of State didn't approve the decision. We got an email that said, you need to concur with this decision. And immediately I just said, are you really asking us to concur with something that has already been announced? And then we went through the process uh, through email of concurring or not concurring, and the council of state did not concur. But in the end, Forrest says he wasn't necessarily opposed to the actual decision. The point was that the council of state had about a window of about an hour to make a decision on that issue, which we had no information on. There was no consultation. There was no meeting, no nothing. Just do it. Cooper announced the statewide stay-at-home order on March 27th. So in the hindsight, do you think the stay-at-home order when it happened was the right decision to make? Um, Well, you know, the the big counties had already made that call anyway. So, um, you know, it was already happening across the state, county-by-county basis. Uh, I'm not questioning. I've I've really never questioned any of these decisions, uh, quite honestly. I mean, uh, you can go look back. I've just said, listen, we just need more information, and more information is better, and if, if uh, you're in this situation, you're, you have info we don't have. I will trust that at the time that was the decision that uh, the governor needed to make. Forrest and other Republicans are pushing for the release of more data. They want to know things like who has recovered from the virus and how many of the new positive cases are symptomatic. Out of 500 inmates in a prison that have gotten this, uh, the virus, 2% of them were symptomatic. So you can kind of skew the data by not having all the information. So if you took out all the prison population, for instance, and said, well, the stay-at-home order doesn't affect that at all because they are, they're already distanced and they're not in contact with the public. So um, those numbers are skewed. It's true that the prison population is isolated from the rest of us, but the people who work there aren't, just as the people who work in nursing homes come and go. That's right. And Forrest wants to know information from the state about who's been hospitalized. 
And did they have pre-existing conditions? Because then you can start to look at the subsets and you can break them down and say, how do we protect our most vulnerable populations? And then move on with a plan based on protecting the people that we absolutely need to protect. And I think we know what that information is, uh, but we have never seen that released. And he talked about a hope of his. You get more and more data and more information and you uh, start to view that against previous pandemics and previous flus and those types of things. Uh, You know, the hope is that when this is all said and done, uh, as bad as it is, that it's like a a bad uh, uh, influenza season. You know, I think that's what would be great of it. It goes through this thing and it ends and we can look back and go, that was a bad flu um, and that it doesn't spike again and all those kinds of things. So it's worth unpacking the flu comment for a moment. Right now, the mortality rate in the U.S. is 5%. That's, of course, astronomically higher than the flu, which is like a tenth of a percent. But there have been studies that indicate that the coronavirus is much more widespread than the confirmed cases. Take that Stanford University study in Santa Clara County, California. At the time of the study, the county had 2,000 cases and 90 deaths. The study, which has been criticized, found antibodies in far more people, and it said between 48,000 and 90,000 people in the county might have had it. So if that's true, it drives down that mortality rate to flu-like levels. But we can see that even if 15 or 30 or 50 times more people have had it than we realize— COVID-19 spreads so quickly that it can overwhelm hospitals like it did in Italy and New York City. And another thing, researchers and journalists have found a surge in so-called unexpected, unexplained deaths nationwide around the time the outbreak took off in the U.S. Now, since late September, there have been nearly 180 flu deaths in the state. North Carolina says it's had more than 340 COVID-19 deaths since what's recognized as the first death in late March. So that's all within five weeks at a time when the state has taken extreme measures with a stay-at-home order. Okay, back to our conversation. The lieutenant governor talked about a divide in the state. We have the situation where I think we have kind of two North Carolinas right now. You have the people that are working from home and they're kind of hunkered down and uh, they still get their paycheck. So they want to stay hunkered down because their life hasn't changed all that much. They're working from home like they're able to do. And then you have all these people that have uh, lost their jobs and they don't have any money. So let's return to the April 21st rally. We asked Forrest, is this the new Tea Party? You know, I don't know. It, this is, It's interesting. Uh, I think there is a broader ideological cross-section here. You know, the ideological cross-section of the Tea Party movement was uh, constitutional conservatives that were just kind of tired of not being heard kind of thing. Uh, I think this is this one's not just conservative. I think there's conservative, liberal, everything across the board here with this. This is different. Now, getting the economy restarted more quickly is certainly an idea that has broad appeal. But that protest was extremely partisan. And as I said, it felt like a Trump rally. Forrest doesn't plan on going to the rallies. He said he's, quote, no activist. But we wondered whether Forrest would tell protesters to wear masks. There were only a few people wearing them at last week's rally. And his response was maybe, but not really. It came down to letting people make their own decisions. 
I don't know. I would tell them to social distance is what I would do. I think the, you know, the case for the mask is, uh, is, you know, a good one if you're going to be around people and you're going to be close to them and all that kind of stuff, I would say social distance if you're not going to wear the mask, right? And uh, allow people to make those decisions. Then Forrest talked about his discomfort with government interference, even if it's for wearing a mask in a pandemic. And I think that's just, you know, generally where personal responsibility comes in and um, we can't rely on the government to fix this. The government's not going to fix this problem. It's going to be the responsibility of the people to fix this problem far beyond a lockdown, uh, you know, far beyond this season or anything else. I mean, what happens if there is no vaccine? You know, you want to have a vaccine for HIV AIDS and uh, people have learned how to create drugs to fix it. We, we've got to get the economy going so we can get innovation going so we can uh, spark the uh, innovation of the American people so they can get out there and start to fix this. But it does take personal responsibility as well. So that idea of the government is not going to fix this problem leads to what should the government's role be in getting out of this? On one hand, he supports a data-driven approach, similar to what the White House and Cooper have suggested, looking at a downward trajectory of new cases, for instance. But he wants it to be on a county-by-county level. If Mecklenburg County needs to remain on shutdown for some longer period because their projections are still going up and they don't meet these criteria, then then you can do that. And, you know, you can put criteria in place, but Uh, I would prefer to look at the numbers across the board and not punish the entire state on lockdown because the majority of the cases are in a few places. But there were times when Forrest didn't seem entirely comfortable with state government wielding that much power. And you said you were not in favor that there is not a government fix for this situation. But, you know, coming out of the lockdown and restarting the economy, which is something that's going to take several months, what should the the role of government in that be? Uh, Yeah, I mean, listen, I think the the moral solution here is the government, obviously, this thing comes along. Government tells people you have to shut your uh, businesses down. I think the moral play is that you have to help support those people that lost their jobs and lost their businesses. This is going to be an expensive venture, and it's not just going to take six months to come out of this. It's going to take Uh, I think, years to recover just from the financial component of it long term. Forrest then began talking about a somewhat Reagan-esque idea that the state, by keeping blanket rules for all of North Carolina, is making people's economic suffering worse. My purpose of saying the government's not going to fix it, it's not going to fix it by telling us how to run our lives. Uh, That's not the spirit of America. That's not what made this country great. Uh, And it's not going to work here. You know, so we need to let people get back about their lives in a responsible and safe way. Um, and uh, then we need to get this economy going again, and we're going to learn a lot of lessons, uh, whether it's about COVID-19 and this coronavirus, or it's about future uh, potential pandemics, about how to handle these things, how to be prepared for them. You know, America was caught off guard. North Carolina was caught off guard. Our cities were caught off guard. Our schools were caught off guard. We have to come out of this prepared for the future. Uh, We need to have masks on store on hand. We need to have all the PPE equipment, the ventilators. Our hospitals need to be prepared. We need to have a plan for how this goes down or any other kind of pandemic. So uh, chalk this up to a uh, very costly, lesson to be learned, but hopefully we are far better prepared in the future. But what should aid at the state level look like coming out of this? 
You know, I don't exactly know. I mean, they're going to come in next week, obviously. I'm sure they'll do some uh, tax implication stuff where people aren't getting punished for their, you know, extended tax returns and having to pay interest on those kinds of things. And uh, certainly there's going to be some uh, unemployment uh, help, some significant unemployment help. He went on to say it was good the state paid off its unemployment insurance debt to the federal government five years ago and bulked up its rainy day fund for unemployment. But everything is up in the air right now. Okay, before we go, let's touch on the Charlotte City Council 6-5 vote on Monday night to accept $50 million in federal security money for the RNC. Now, that vote tally should sound familiar. That's what it was in 2018 when the city voted to host the convention. The cast of characters is a bit different. There are two new council members now. Yeah, this really was Groundhog Day. The vote should have been a formality, but not with the pandemic. Council members like Matt Newton said they didn't want the city to become a super spreader. We know we're in new, you know, a new world here, a new paradigm. Uh, we don't want to be the epicenter of the next outbreak. Uh, we don't want to offer up our city as a Petri dish. We don't want to be Mardi Gras. But the narrow majority noted that if the city turned down the money, they would be on the hook for whatever security costs the city incurred. So even if it's a stripped-down convention with a fraction of the people attending, there will be security costs, and Charlotte taxpayers would have paid them. That was Steve Harrison helping us navigate North Carolina politics amid the coronavirus pandemic as political reporter for WFAE. Thanks, Steve. Happy to help, Lisa. That concludes today's episode of Inside Politics. For continued coverage of the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on Charlotte, go to WFAE.org. And you can listen to this podcast every other Thursday and subscribe to Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. If you like the episode, make sure to give it a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Please take care and stay safe. Until next time, I'm Lisa Warp. Catch you real soon on Inside Politics.